0: On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Timothy Paul about conciliar Christology. I think it is probably one of the most helpful episodes you'll have on kind of an, I guess, an introduction to just exactly what conciliar Christology is, uh, what the terms mean, person, nature, will, mind, all of these often confusing terms, supposit, what do they mean? and how do they fit together, and then what are some of the challenges to affirming Christology, and how might one respond to them? I found Dr. Paul to be one of the most gracious interviews we've had, uh, very uh, articulate and helpful in clarifying these doctrines, so I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. Uh, if you have comments, thoughts, feedback, uh, let us know. Shoot us a message, comment, uh, do what you guys do to, to let us know, how to better the podcast, how to ask better questions, how to get better guests. Uh, but I think we have probably one of the premier, if not the premier guest, on, on concealer Christology uh, right now in Dr. Paul. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan
1: Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And we are a podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking. And on today's episode, I am really thrilled to introduce you to what I view, at least personally, in my own opinion, one of the premier analytic theologians on Christology. So especially Orthodox or conciliar Christology. So I know he has two excellent books out there with, I think it's Oxford University Press on uh, conciliar Christology. I think the most recent one, Extended Concealer Christology, just came out this last year. And that's Dr. Timothy Paul. And I believe he's in, up in Minnesota. So that's probably why he has such an epic beard. <laughs> um, <laughs> besides just, you know, the sheer fact that beards are cool. Anyway, I want to give him the chance to introduce himself to you guys, uh, our listeners. So... Dr. Paul, think 30 to 60 second introduction on uh, background or anything that might be of interest for them to know about you. Cause I, I imagine some of our listeners know you cause we do have quite a few people interested in analytic theology, but we also probably have a lot of listeners who have no idea who
2: you are. Okay. Yeah. Thanks guys. And Jordan and Brandon, thanks so much for having me on the show. I've listened to some of your past episodes, like with uh, James Arcadi, a friend of oh, mine, yeah. and I thought they were just wonderful. So uh, good work. Thanks. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, Okay. So I'm Tim Paul. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, in St. Paul. Um, I've been here 12 years now. My wife also teaches here. She's also a philosopher. Her name is Faith Glavy Paul. We met in graduate school at St. Louis University, working with Eleanor Stump. Uh, And we have five kiddos. That's awesome. And I work on Christology.
0: (laughs) Now, the
2: fact that I'm from St. Louis, so... I'm just curious. Are you a Cardinals fan? No, no, but I'm not any sort of baseball fan. I know one of you said in a previous episode that you, uh, you umpired. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's before? me. That yeah, was you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, no, I don't know much about baseball.
0: Okay. Uh, I
2: know holes was there for a while. Yes, that's, that's he definitely was.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: Well, Dr. Paul, we uh, appreciate you joining us. Um, so before we get, you know, Jordan already mentioned we were going to speak with you about conciliar Christology, but before we get into that specific topic, um, can you explain to the listeners the role of philosophy as relates to the Christian faith, and maybe more specifically, um, how philosophy is used to defend specific doctrines uh, of the faith?
2: Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of things you can use philosophy for in Christianity. Uh, the early church and people like Thomas Aquinas... In the middle, uh, in the medieval era, had an idea of what's called the preambles of faith. So they're things that you can know by reason that you don't need divine testimony to learn. You can also know them through divine testimony, but they're things that are knowable by the human intellect. So uh, one is that there is a God. So one thing philosophy can do is it can uh, help bolster the case for some of these preambles of faith that there's a God, he rewards those who seek him, things like that. A second thing it can do. And what my books primarily do is uh, defeat defeaters. And here's what I mean. Um, Some people see the the claims of Christianity or traditional Christianity, like there's a God-man that exists, and they think, ah, that's a contradiction. You can't have one thing that's both God and man. So your view is false. Your religion is false. And one neat thing that I think philosophy can do and do quite well is respond to these sort of objections. Defeat the defeater to the faith. So those are two main things. Other things it does is it it clarifies concepts. Like what does it mean for a thing to be a miracle? What is the nature of testimony? And how does testimony get you truth? And can you be justified in believing the testimony of a book that's pretty old? You know, like those sorts of things. So clarifying concepts, defeating defeaters, uh, giving the preambles of faith and some justification for them. Those are things I think it does best.
0: That's awesome. I, I think... You said in at least the purpose uh, of your books were more of a defense rather than a positive treatment. Is that right?
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: Cool. So I, I found your explanation of philosophy and those and how it, its purpose serves the Christian faith to be really, really helpful. Oh, thank um, you. As far as Conceal Your Christology goes, um, what is it and why would anyone want to affirm it?
2: Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a term that I didn't coin. You can find it earlier in discussions, but I gave it an explicit definition, which is likely what these other folks meant. But the, the definition is this. Um, conciliar Christology is that conjunction of claims that you find in the first seven ecumenical councils of the Christian church. So like First Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from in 325, has a bunch of claims about what Christ is and who he is. And then you have six other councils up to Second to Nicaea, in seven eighty seven, and I, and so anything taught about Christ in those seven councils, I call conciliar Christology in the book.
0: Okay, so I know that that's something I want to affirm personally, um, and I know you make a claim in your book that Christ must be one person, and he has to have two natures and two wills. <laughs> um, for those who are not familiar with these technical types of terms, even those who are, I think it can get a little confusing sometimes, especially like person, sure. um, how that's used for Christ versus how we typically use that in our normal conversations. So could you walk us through what exactly is a person? Uh, what is a nature? What is a will? And how does that all kind of fit together?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I read these terms through um, through sort of a scholastic Uh, set of glasses. So I I approach these texts primarily through an atomistic line of thought. Uh, And in that line of thought, I mean, you find it also in Anselm, so it's not made up whole cloth in the 13th century. But uh, the way they understand a person is a person is a supposit of a rational nature. You got two parts there then, the supposit part and what type of supposit, one with a rational nature. Now that now you want to know what's a supposit, because it's right there in the definition. <laughs> that's right. So uh, what's a supposit? Well, there's lots of tricky technical apparatus that you can give to define it carefully. And that's good. I, I do that in the books. But um, for our conversation, we can at least start by thinking of it this way. Um, my hand is a thing. It exists. And yet it's not a thing in the same way I am a thing. It's a, it's a part or a component of a larger ontological whole. So I'm the I'm the primary thing here. Composed of parts, and my hand is one of those parts. The idea is this: a supposit is a maximal existing ontological unity. It's the whole man is a supposit, not just a mere part of the man. And so the idea here is that a person is a a maximal ontological unity. It's the biggest thing there, and it has a rational nature. If it fulfills both those conditions, it counts as a person. Hmm. And the neat thing is. Uh, that definition tells you why Christ's human nature—that flesh and blood thing that he assumed—why that thing doesn't count as a person. It doesn't count as a person. Uh, it does have a—it de- uh, does have a rational nature, but it does—it isn't a supposit, and that's precisely because it isn't the ont- largest ontological unity there. It's part, in some sense, a part of a larger whole—the the person of Christ who's assumed it.
0: That's very very helpful. I. Honestly, I I still sometimes struggle with these distinctions. So I think the way you explained it, it's very uh, nicely done. The idea of this largest ontological whole uh, versus the part. So that's what person and nature are. Why is it important that Christ has two wills? And how does that relate to those two things?
2: Yeah. So the word nature, uh, you asked about wills. I'm going to take one step back and explain what I mean by nature. And then one step forward for wills. Okay. Concerning natures, they're often understood in one of two senses. So one sense of nature is like when we say human nature is to do thus and such. We're basically saying being human, you do thus and such, or or, humanity is this sort of way. It's a claim about a a general, abstract, shareable entity. If you think about Plato's forms, if if you're familiar with those, they're universal, shareable, mind-independent things, which can be instantiated in multiple locations at once. Well, um, an abstract human nature is like a platonic form of humanity. The concrete view of natures, on the other hand, is a particular concrete view. So uh, a concrete nature that's human is like a fleshy, bloody, hairy thing with body and soul together. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the thing wearing your clothes, your your clothes in case a human nature, maybe not your head. Your head isn't clothed, but you, you get the picture, right? Like the thing in your chair. Um, now what did the councils mean by these terms? I think they use the term nature concretely. And I think that because sometimes they'll paraphrase, they'll say of Christ's human nature, that it's flesh enlivened by a rational soul. And that description sounds an awful lot like, you know, like a flesh and blood body soul composite and not at all like a platonic form. Or they'll say the, the human nature hung on the wood of the cross and bled. And again, that's the sort of thing you cannot say. Reasonably of a Platonic form. So now you asked about wills, and here I am talking about natures. The reason I brought up natures is I think they meant it concretely a concrete human nature, a flesh and blood thing that was assumed, that was pierced and hung on the cross. That's what the nature is. And if you ask how many wills that person had, well, if he has the fullness of humanity, if he's a fully human person, and he's also a fully divine person, he's got all the component parts that come with humanity. And all the component parts that come with divinity and one component part that comes with your concrete human nature, one component part that comes with your humanity is an intellect and another one is a will. So likewise for him, he'd be less than you or I in the human spectrum if he had fewer integral parts of humanity than you or I did. And so that's why he's got to have the human will as well as the divine will.
0: Awesome. Uh, one more question I want to ask before we get into particular, I guess, challenges or defeaters, as sure. uh, a lot of philosophers call them to conceal your Christology is, uh, you mentioned how Christ's human nature must have something aptly referred to as a soul. Right. Um, must this be what the popular level people think of as soul? You know, if I walked on uh, the street next to Target or something and I asked everybody what they thought a soul was, I mean, I... Imagine I'm going to get some ethereal, mystical um, mm-hmm. inner person that, you know, if I watch Doctor Strange, you know, can somehow get punched out of my body and I'm still <laughs> <Right>. like there. <laughs>
2: right. So
0: is that what he's thinking? Uh, or is that what you're thinking? Or is are there other ways to understand what the
2: soul is? Mm-hmm. I, I certainly think there are other ways of understanding the soul. Um, I I used to make the analogy of that movie Ghost starring Patrick Swayze. But I'm, I think I'm just showing my age when I use it now because it's. I think I should say Doctor Who because it sounds like the same sort of view where like the the soul is really like a ghost that's a bit more translucent than you are, mm-hmm. and it may, sometimes makes spooky noises and you know stays in the cupboard and scares kids. Uh, and um, that's not the way you have to think about souls in the in Christian church history. In fact, the majority of thought, as far as I'm aware, especially medieval thought sees it more like a, an Aristotelian view of souls, where it's a, a form of the body. It's the organizing principle of the body. You've got all this meaty, fleshy stuff. And if if you guys smothered me, you had this same meaty, fleshy stuff here, but you wouldn't have a person here anymore. You wouldn't have a living organism. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the material stuff alone that gets you a, a Tim Paul or a Jordan or a Brandon. It's material stuff plus some organizing principle, which makes it united and alive. And that organizing principle on Aristotelian views is called the the soul or the the animating form. So I, that's what I think they had in mind. I can't really prove that. I'm not really sure. Uh, but you, the main point I'm trying to make is you don't have to view it in the Doctor Who style view of souls to understand these texts.
1: Hmm. So in, in talking about Christ here, we have you know we have one person. And we're saying that he has two natures and that he has two wills, and and then we're we're talking about him um, using predicates like you know eternal and uncreated and omnipresent when we're referring to his divinity, and then we're also re- when we're referring to his humanity. Obviously, he's not eternal; he's his humanity is not uncreated. Right. So this brings about potential problems. So can you walk us through what some of these? Um so what what do you think are the greatest challenges in defending this conciliar view of christ of, of Christ?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think the main problem, the main challenge and the one I spend oh Lordy, I don't know four or so chapters talking about in my 2016 book on conciliar Christology is what's been called the the fundamental philosophical problem of Christology. And you could put it like this. You can say anything that's divine has this property and take your pick, it could be immutable anything divine is a spirit or it's eternal or it's unchanging or it's necessary it's some pretty impressive property that a thing has when it's divine and furthermore nothing human has that feature or you might think to be human requires having the contrary of that feature all humans are changeable and suffer can suffer and can be causally affected and are contingent and exist in time and a bunch of other features and the the thing to claim here is, if divine, then immutable. And if human, then mutable. Mm-hmm. So the Christ is supposed to be both divine and human. And so you derive that Christ is both mutable and immutable. And suddenly that doesn't look too good. It looks like you have a contradiction on your hands. So you've got to do something here to try to solve it. I think that's the, the biggest uh, philosophical hurdle, the biggest philosophical problem for Christology.
0: So... For example, if Jesus is immutable, um, how is it that he can become incarnate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, How how exactly do we go about defeating that charge? Because that seems like a pretty big one.
2: Yeah, um, for sure. That's out there. Yeah. So there's different ways of doing it. I'll tell you some of the ways that um, I think are precluded by conciliar Christology. Some things that folks do say, but I think probably oughtn't to say if they want to stay true to the first seven councils. Um, here's one thing you can say. Well, he actually wasn't immutable after all. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a a faulty, bombastic notion of the divinity to impute to it these really fancy features like immutability. And if you say that, then, of course, you're going to deny the first premise, the one I said that was, if it's divine, then it's immutable. You're going to say, well, no, that's false. Divinity doesn't require that. And a second way to go about it is to really ramp down the human features of Christ. You could say, well, actually, he really is immutable. He just got to be because that's what divinity is. So maybe he's not really changeable. Maybe, maybe um, you know, docetism starts running its head here. Maybe instead, what we have here is a um, an image or a mirage or a, uh, something like that of a person and not a real person changing. And of course, if you are a conciliar Christologist or well, just but any sort of traditional Christian, you're not going to want to say Christ really wasn't human and just pretended to be. So those are two ways you might go about it and why I think each one of them doesn't uh, isn't going to work for those who are um, traditionally minded.
0: So how would you go about solving
2: the dilemma then? Mm-hmm. I think of it like this. I think if we start by understanding words like mutable and immutable in this way, we're going to have a huge problem. Which way? Uh, like this something is immutable when it can't be changed no matter what period and something is mutable when it can be changed at least in some way if you start with those sorts of you might call them truth conditions or analyses or conceptualizations of what immutability means then i think you're just sunk Um, you can't get both those things Uh, at least on my view you can't so you need to do something you can maybe split the things that are mutable and immutable well maybe the word is immutable but Jesus Christ is not immutable i think that doesn't work either that's that's nestorian in my estimation because you have two different guys there mm-hmm. so i think you have to you have to accept both the immutability and mutability for the councils and so i think the best way to go about it is to revise our conceptualizations of what those terms mean mm-hmm. instead of saying it's immutable when it can't change no matter what period. We say it's immutable when it has a nature that can't change no matter what period. And to say it's mutable is to say it has a nature that can, in some ways, change. And the only thing ever, so far as we know, that fulfills both those conditions is a thing with two natures. And the only thing ever we know of that does that, or has two natures, is Jesus Christ. So in virtue of his divine nature, or qua his divinity, he's unchanging, and in virtue of her qua, his human nature, his flesh and blood composite, he can change. That's the way I view it. So you take the terms and you render them no longer contradictories of each other. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you can accept all the claims of the argument without a contradiction following.
0: So what it seems like some people who would want to deny immutability and say that there is a contradiction still would just say, well, how does that work if the divine nature is... I mean, I guess the divine person is adding a na- another nature. How is it that the divine nature is somehow, I guess, cut off or siloed off from the change?
2: Hmm. Yeah. So this is a question people often ask about the very act of incarnating. Like mm-hmm. how, if the divine nature is supposed to be that in virtue of which the person is immutable, how does it stay unchanging when it unites somehow to the human nature? I think an important thing to do here is draw a distinction that the medievals drew between a real relation and a relation of reason here's what they meant something is a real relation when uh both the things related to each other like me and you we both exist and we both have a certain feature each of us such that um uh the claim is true because of the features we have Mm -hmm. now that's convoluted here's an example um i weigh more than you Is my hunch just looking at you from the neck up. I'm pretty sure I weigh more (laughs) than you, but who knows? So I weigh more than you, and that's a real relation. How come? Well, because you and I both exist, Mm -hmm. and um, we each have a feature, our weight, and my weight is, you know, however you explain it, my weight is higher than your weight. Um, So a relation of reason, on the other hand, is a relation where at least one of the things doesn't really exist, or it doesn't have in it um, a foundation for the truth. Like uh, I weigh less than, or yeah, I weigh more than Bilbo Baggins. But that's, there's, there's a sense in which that's true, but it's not a real relation. Now, the important thing to note here is um, in the case of the incarnation, both the things exist, both the natures really exist. Mm-hmm. But the change, the, the difference that occurs in incarnation is only on one side of the equation. It's the sort of thing we sometimes call a Cambridge change in contemporary philosophy. A Cambridge change is a change like um, I'm a certain distance from Cambridge right now. And if I stood up and took five steps, any direction, I well, most directions, I'd be uh, a different direction from Cambridge, or sorry, a different distance from Cambridge afterwards. Now, Cambridge, the city, didn't change at all. Mm-hmm. I'm the thing that changed. All the change is sort of in here, in, in Tim Paul, not in Cambridge. So likewise, when uh, my younger cousin grows taller than me, and um, I stay the same height, all the change in the world, so to speak, is on his side of the equation, not my side of the equation. I can keep my same height in my same existence, and he gains a different height, his same existence. So there, it's a Cambridge change again. It's just a change in one side of the equation, not the other. Now, to bring this all back to the incarnation, when Christ assumes a human nature, again, it's like my cousin growing taller than me. All the change is on one side of that equation. And it's on the creature side of the equation. The human nature is, the world is different because the human nature and the hypostatic union exist in the world. No change in the divine nature, all change outside of it. That's the idea of it. So how does,
0: as I'm thinking about these, the idea of this logical or this real relation, mm-hmm. um, the relation between the divine and the human nature, that's a the real relation because both of them are Actual things that make both of them true, right?
2: That's right. It's a real relation. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, this is a little, sorry, go ahead. This is a little bit off topic, I guess, but it seems like a lot of people I've read have wanted, I guess, maybe they're using different definitions when it comes to relations. They want to say that that's not a real relation, uh, such as the God world relation is not a real relation. But it seems the way you've defined real relation is just simply they don't have to be changed by one another to have a real relation as long as both of them exist and make whatever that relation is true um then it's real am i am i understanding
2: that right no you're pressing a good point and it helps me to clarify what i ought to have said um real relations can go in one direction Hmm. so uh, i can be really related to one thing and that thing not be really related to me Hmm. so God is not really related to creatures. That's what the people you were talking about, the world-God relations say. But creatures are really related to God because there's something in creatures in virtue of which they bear their relation to God. But God has nothing new in God in the act of creating that relates him to creatures. So likewise in incarnation, there's something real in the human, in the world side of the equation. There's a real thing there that's new. It's a real relation from the assumed human nature to the person, the divine person. Mm -hmm. But it's not real relation the other way. It's a relation of reason one way, real relation the other way. And that's what's called a mixed relation because it's real one way and uh, relation the other way.
0: Okay. So I know Thomas Aquinas talks about that. Um, Is there anyone else who spends time actually discussing that? Because it seems like that's a pretty crucial distinction. And I don't know how many people are explaining that.
2: Yeah, I, I know explain. you do
0: in one of your books, I think. Yeah,
2: I spent some time discussing it in one of my books. Um, I can I can find it and tell you and you can link it on your uh, yeah. page if you like. Absolutely.
0: Um, uh,
2: Matthews Grant and Mark Spencer are two colleagues of mine that have done some work on the God world relationship. Um, and they talk a fair bit about real versus uh, relations of reason. And I can I can send you a link to that paper as well if you want to share it too.
0: Yeah, that'd be terrific. We'd love to share that. Um, I I always like sharing good resources for those who listen. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I, I've got a question about um, about knowledge. I think this is one of you know for the maybe the average person in the pew. This would be a question that they would come up with. You know, we have Jesus and you know, he makes statements like, you know, he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return, but then, you know, we're also want we want to say he's divine. So he should, he should have unlimited knowledge. Can mm-hmm. you kind of walk us through what you think the best way for, for what is the best way for us to understand that? Um, I, I remember reading, um, in Dr. Greg Welty's class, um, Tom Morris's response to that. And I thought it was interesting and, and good, but I don't know what your take is on on his two minds model, but, um, just kind of walk us through how you think the, what's, what's the best way around this conundrum of Jesus's knowledge?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, in my 2019 book, the extended consider Christology book in, oh goodness, I want to say the last chapter, uh, besides, besides the conclusion. And there I talk about this sort of, um, objection uh, I think the passage you cite is like what Mark thirteen thirty two something like this. That sounds right. And, um, and Aquinas brings this up and Aquinas says, well, some folks, when they see that Christ says, uh, no one knows, not even the son, but only the father. Uh, Aquinas says, some folks say that he's saying he doesn't know it in his human nature, but he does know it in his divine nature because he can't be ignorant in any way in his divine nature. That's the very same intellect that the the father has. So if the father, if the son is ignorant of something, the father is too, and vice versa, with respect to the divine intellect. Aquinas isn't happy with that response. He he pulls some texts. Now I'm working here from memory, but there are texts that say that Christ is a uh, the fullness of grace and truth, and uh, Aquinas says he can't be the fullness of truth if he lacks some knowledge that some other created entity like you or I could have. Um, but we could do. I mean, eventually all of us will know the time of the second coming. And the judgment. So he thinks you you shouldn't go that way. You, that way being the way of saying that the human nature, he's ignorant through, but the divine nature, he knows it through. It's kind of like if you ask me if I have my phone in my pocket and I say, no, because I don't have it in my left pocket, but I do have it in my right pocket. <laughs> it's a bit duplicitous for me to say, no, if I really have the you know, the phone in one pocket, but not the other, how could I have it in both? I don't even know. <laughs> so, um, so what Aquinas says you should think is this. He he recalls back to in Genesis where Abraham and Isaac are on the mountain. And he points to something peculiar that uh, Abraham says, or sorry, that God says to Abraham. God says to Abraham, now I know that you love me. And Aquinas says, he's following Aristotle, uh, no, not Aristotle, he's following Augustine here. Uh, Augustine reads this and says, well, what's that mean? Now I know that you love me. It's not like God was ignorant beforehand and now he sees it and now he knows. No, says Augustine. Uh, Instead, what he's saying is, now I make it known that you love me. It's it's reading the passive for the active, sort of. It's reading the, now I know, no, now I make you know that you love me. Aquinas says, so likewise here, when Christ says, no one knows, not even the son, but only the father. What he's really saying is nobody makes it known. Nobody, not even the son, but only the father makes it known. And you might think, well, that's a that's a bit of exegetical jumping jacks to go through <laughs> to get his view, but it's got the following going for it. A lot of people accepted that Christ knew that in his human intellect, knew the future's time of judgment, that, that he knew all of our future sins, all your, or my sins on the cross that he knew when he prayed in Gethsemane, all of all of our sins, and he prayed for us individually. Lots of folks accept that sort of claim. And so making sense of how that all fits together is a tricky business. If he's really ignorant of important things like the the last judgment.
0: I've, I've, I don't think I've heard that uh, interpretation, mm-hmm. yeah. but I like it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could, it's, in, it's in that book I mentioned earlier. I'm trying to think if I have it in any articles you can link to as well. I don't think so.
0: Which which reminds me, you have uh, an article on, I think, truth-making and the trinity With Res Philosophica, um, is that available anywhere besides those who actually subscribe to that journal?
2: Um, I don't know the copyright laws. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I do think I'm allowed to send it to people who ask me for it. So if you ask me for it, I will email it to you. That's awesome. Um,
0: Because I know uh, a lot of people have been really interested in that topic. Because for whatever reason, um, mm -hmm. truth-making and the Trinity is really cool in nerd corners of the world. (laughs) Um, So I guess that's a little bit off topic. Brandon, did you have any other, other ones that uh, objections that you really wanted to talk about?
1: No, I don't. So
0: I guess I have one more that I I wanted to ask you about. Um, I don't know how many of the average uh, church members would, would have this question, but it seems like it is pretty popular in academic, the academic world. So they would say, "Well, Jesus is a single person, um, therefore he has a single nature and a single will. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that you could have two wills or two minds is crazy." Uh, I think. Uh, that, you know, they would look at somebody like Tom Morris and say that his view of having two minds sounds very schizophrenic. And the fact that all of his examples are like that, uh, tell, kind of cut against the idea that it's even possible. So why would, I guess, how would we go against uh, that charge? Um, the fact that this is just a completely, utterly unique thing that we have no examples to of oh, and i mean maybe that maybe that's just the answer it is completely utterly unique and that's why you don't have any examples
2: <laughs> yeah yeah um that's definitely part of what i think if if it were the case that i could find not a single example in the purely created world that was a good example for what happens when the lord becomes incarnate in human flesh i wouldn't be too sad about the case <laughs> and the same for the trinity too like if, if if i can't find a good example in concrete material reality to point you to such that this is exactly what the Trinity is like over there. Um, well, no loss there, because I don't, I don't really think we need such examples. But um, for those who claim this sort of claim, if there's one person, then there's one will. For that sort of claim, that's, um. well, that's just an assertion so far. What I need is an argument that's supposed to show that if one person, then one will, then only one will. And... um. And I I don't have argument.
0: Does it seem to, it seems to be from what I've read anyway? Sorry to interject. um, at At least guys like William Hasker and others will say, well, everybody has this intuition about what a person is. And it's what the modern understanding of person is. And that understanding is just like, you know, they have one will, one rational nature, and you don't have two natures. Mm hmm. So it, do we have to object to the current understanding of person to make this work?
2: Well, there is a a there is a, what's sometimes called a Lockean notion of person, John Locke's notion of person, person where a person is something like a, well, I was going to say a thing that can do personal stuff, but that's no good. Uh, a person is a, a <laughs> thing that can perform rational activities. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have a center of consciousness there, you have a person. If you have two of those or two wheels, you have two people there. Now, if that's the view, if you want to define person such that it's merely a, a center of consciousness or the thing that has the center of consciousness, then you might have problems accepting the old teachings of the church. Um, I think the fault there is just the the definition of person being employed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, what I'm trying to do is safeguard those early councils from philosophical objections. If someone else wants to say, well if you take one of the terms they use and understand it differently than how they understood it you'll get problems that might well be true but it doesn't matter to me so much if a novel interpretation of what the term means makes an inconsistency earlier there just like if you define nature in a radically in a different way than the way they understood it you might get a problem but that's not a problem for them it's a problem for taking your definition of nature and trying to smush it into their worldview
0: yeah so for those interested in this topic who want to do more study, what would you say are the best resources in defensive conciliar Christology outside of your own works? Because <laughs> I do want to commend those. I think anybody who's listening should get a copy of those. Um, besides that, and then who are the best resources against conciliar Christology? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we lo- we like to try to do on the podcast to the best of our ability is is to encourage thinking. And I think the best thinking is done when you're engaging both sides of the debate. Sure. So, I'm curious, who's the best for and against it?
2: Well, I really like the work of um, of Oliver Crisp in Christological stuff. So he's got those great books. I think it's four of them now, four books on the incarnation. I don't think he sleeps. I just think he writes books, <laughs> <laughs> but and good books too. The pro- if yeah. he was just writing drivel, it'd be you could say, oh, I understand how he can pump out so much. But how he can pump out so much that's so good is really impressive. But so I really like Oliver Crisp's work, uh, James Arcadi, whom you guys just interviewed recently. He's got some good work on the Incarnation. These are these are people I take to be pro conciliar Christology. Yeah. I mean, don't take my word for it; they don't say it explicitly in print anywhere, and they're friends of mine. I think that they sign on to all of conciliar Christology. Um, uh, I love Eleanor Stump's work on the Incarnation and Aquinas. She's got that meaty book on the Atonement, which. Isn't quite doing the same sort of thing I'm doing because I'm working on the metaphysics of the incarnation and she's working on how the atonement works. Uh, but it's a delightful and wondrous read, and she too is a, um, a classical theist. I'd be very surprised if she denied any parts of conciliar Christology. Very surprised against it. I really like the work of um, uh, oh boy, Richard Cross, he's a friend of mine. Sorry, yeah. Richard. Uh, I really like the work of Richard Cross. Um, I don't, he's not a considered Christologist, um, but he does very good work. He's very even handed when he talks about people who accept different views than his. So he's got that book, um, medieval views of the incarnation. Is that what it is? Or the metaphysics, of the incarnation, colon, something, something, Scotus yep. something, something medieval. Yes. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. And he's got a new book, uh, the communication of idioms, but I think in Latin communicatio idiomatum, I think it's called. And uh, they're just wondrous. They're, they're excellent books. Uh, I think there's a guy uh, named Andrew Loke who doesn't accept my views, um, doesn't accept conciliar Christology, thinks a Christian need not be beholden to it. Um, and he does really excellent work. He's got a good book, too, not only on the metaphysics of the incarnation, but also on the patristic evidence for the high Christology. Um, so I think he does lots of good work in the area, even though he's against uh, conciliar Christology.
0: Awesome. Uh, and for those of our listeners who want to follow your work, mm-hmm. is there a way they can do that? Do you have a website? Do you have social media presence? Do you have any of those types of things where they can keep track of what you're doing? Yeah. Um,
2: let's see. I do have a website. I'm pretty sure it's uh, no, sorry, timpaul.wordpress.com. And uh, I also have a fillpapers, Phil fillpapers.org site, which is probably where I would go if I were you. It'll have a list of all my publications and and links to them, depending on your library access, you could probably get some Mm -hmm. of them. Um, So yeah, those would be the places to look. Great. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all these things. Um, I know I've really learned a lot from it and I think it's been really helpful to think through these aspects. Um, It seems like these can be difficult landmines to some degree. Uh, for the average Christian who wants to affirm all that's true uh, about Jesus and yet doesn't quite have the conceptual apparatus to do it. So I think you've helped us quite a bit on those areas. So huge thank you to you. Uh, And again, for those who are listening, I encourage you to check out his own stuff. Uh, You've you've published quite a bit, uh, papers and these two new books that are fantastic. I think I remember seeing Luke Stamps, who's a Baptist, say, Uh, that he was reading, I think your first one in defense of conciliar Christology and said something along the lines of, um, I don't usually like analytic theology, but if this is what it was like all the time, I would love it. So (laughs) if you have someone who doesn't (laughs) love analytic theology saying that it's great stuff, then that tells you that it's really good. Uh, So uh, I really appreciate your work Uh, I think those who haven't been exposed to you will be benefited by it greatly. Um, And we're just really thankful for you taking the time. And for those who've been listening, uh, so you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. Uh, Maybe there'll be more of them in the future. Uh, We'll we'll start a movement. I don't know. But uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we we look forward to talking to you guys soon.
2: Thanks, guys.